When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, our guest is one of the most acclaimed female country artists of our time, West Virginia native and multi-Grammy award winner, Kathy Matea. When chatting with an artist of Kathy's caliber, and who's been at it as long as she has, the early 80s to be exact, there's obviously so much ground to cover and so many roads to go down. Today, what we focus on mainly is her new role as host of NPR Music and West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Mountain Stage Show. Kathy's been performing and sometimes co-writing on the show for over 30 years, so it makes total sense that she would take the reins. She's also performed on the show more times than any other female artist, second to fellow West Virginia native Tim O'Brien. While West Virginia will always be her home, Kathy's chatting with us today from her house in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're honored to connect with her. So without further ado, please welcome Kathy Matea. Kathy, welcome to Diddy TV. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Listen, okay, we're going to talk about the fact that you're the new host for Mountain Stage and NPR. But let's just go back to two Grammys, 14 plus albums, multiple number one hits. I mean, what haven't you done? <laughs> oh, I could name a few things, but you know, I can't, I am not, I can't have nothing to complain about. I mean, I realized that at a certain point I've had a chance to do a lot more things than, than most people even dream of. And everything from now on is just gravy. You know, it's just, I, I said when I started out that I would do it as long as it's still stage fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so far, it still is. So why at this point in your career did you think this is the right move for me to host Mountain Stage? Well, it's very interesting. I didn't really think about it. Um, I've started, the arc of Mountain Stage is sort of the arc of my career. You know, the same kind of basic lifespan. Um, they started, I think I got a record deal in the early eighties. I think they started in 82 or something or 83. And, um, and so then they're in my hometown. So I did the show from the beginning and I was on the show, uh, that they did, uh, at the NPR convention when they went to try to go national and it was very exciting and really fun. And so I've kind of walked beside them on a parallel path for all these years. So, it came up, I was visiting with Andy Ridenour, the original, one of the founders and the, the original executive producer. He's since retired and he came out to a show and he mentioned somebody guest hosting Mountain Stage. And I said, well, I've never guest hosted Mountain Stage. He said, would you want to? I said, I think it sounds like fun. So I went and did it and they were like, you know, <laughs> that was like the easiest we've ever had it with a guest host. And it's like, there's a whole bunch of stuff you just get without us having to tell you. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, I'll do some more. And I thought maybe I would be like a regular guest host, you know? And then they came to us and said, you know, Larry's been looking for a way to kind of step back 
sure. have a little more time to himself. And I, I was, it really was like this. Oh, no, no, I can't do that. I can't drive to West Virginia all the time and be researching all these bands and then still doing my own music. I just, I can't do that. And it, but I could not say no. It was like, it lines up with everything I value, like live music, giving a platform to people who are necess not necessarily going to be played on commercial radio, helping keep really good music alive. Um, I, I just think, and, and, you know, it's NPR. I, I love him. It's, that's what my radio is tuned to in my car, you know? And it was like every, it ch checked every box of things that I value in the world. And I kind of, I started chewing on it and I thought, it uses my skill set in a completely different way. And there's something about being in my 60s now and like shining light on someone else and sort of paying it forward and helping to keep institutions alive that are, are really important to me. And I just realized, you know, it's it's such a counterbalance to the stereotypical West Virginia culture jokes and stuff. It's a classy thing and it smacks of West Virginia and the hang is great. And I was like, oh, I think it's completely unexpected, but I have to say yes. So for a lot of people that may not know this, it's broadcast out of Charleston, West Virginia, and that's where you grew up. That's where I grew up. And what was it like growing up in Charleston? Well, Charleston was the big city. I actually grew up in a suburb of Charleston called Cross Lanes, which was named for the stoplight. <laughs> we had our own zip code, but we were still part of Charleston because we were unincorporated. And, you know, at the time, there was a lot of industry. Uh, the coal mines had shut down, most of them, in that area. And the chemical plants had moved in because there was a strong uh, work ethic among the community. They were glad to have good jobs. People didn't complain too much if the water smelled bad or was tough to drink. You know, people were just grateful to have a good uh, way of making a living. And so uh, my dad worked at Monsanto for his whole career. And there was you know, the entire river was lined up with chemical plants, FMC, uh, Dow, Carbide, Monsanto, just one right after the other. And so everybody's dad worked at one of the plants and everybody had, you know, good income and the place was booming it, but it was still a small town. So it was, you know, it was kind of quintessential America, really. Well, when you grew up, were you singing in the church at school? I mean, how did you sort of um, develop your, your career, your musical career and your singing career? Well, um, I was the whiz kid in my family and my community. So I kind of came out tap dancing and, uh, you know, my poor mother, it's like having a border collie for a kid, you know? <laughs> and, um, she was 40 when I was born. I'm sure she was just like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? So when I got into the first grade, I had two older brothers and they would give me, I'd bug them when they'd be doing their homework and they'd give me math problems and stuff. And, I could read and do math by the time I got in first grade. So after a month in first grade, they kind of discovered this and tested me out of first grade. So I got double promoted. And when they were testing me, my, the, the family story, the family lore is that, um, my, you know, they took me up to the board of education, took me out of school and they were testing me. And the guy evidently stepped out of the room, the, chief, the guy who was doing the testing. And he looked at my mother in the waiting room and he said, you don't have any more at home like this, do you? She said, <laughs> home with her for six years you gotta help me <laughs> oh that's hilarious so she he said just don't let her get bored because everything comes easy to her so she put me my mom became my tour manager basically. Oh, okay girl scouts and ice skating and horseback riding and piano lessons and i the only things that really stuck had to do with music 
And when I was 10, I went to Girl Scout camp and I discovered that you could bring a guitar to a campfire and you cannot bring a piano to a campfire. This is true. This was a life-changing moment for me. And that I became just obsessed, mostly because I was just awkward. You know, I was emotionally behind for my age and then everybody in my grade was older than me. And so they were more mature than me even before we evened out, you know? And so I discovered that if you had a guitar, everybody gathered around and wanted to sing the songs and you didn't have to say the right thing or have any particular social skills. It just was a thing that created community. And I think it saved my life. So if you came out tap dancing, you probably came out performing. You probably enjoyed it the minute that you did it, right? <laughs> you know, I was that five-year-old in the cute little outfit doing the tap dances at the, you know, dance lesson recitals and all, all that, all the stuff, all the stuff. And we're going to get back to, to Mountain State here in just a second. But in West, in West Virginia, in Charleston at that time, was there a music scene? And if so, was it rock or was it, was it more on the sort of bluegrass or, or folk side of things? Well, I left Charleston when I was 17. So um, I spent my, I didn't really do, you know, I, I never got into the club scene, although there was a really strong club scene, mm -hmm. very strong union there. Um, but for me, it was sort of like whatever presented itself. So um, I got this guitar and I started playing the Girl Scout songs and stuff. And when we do camp outs and all that, and at, at some of the meetings. And then our church, we had this little tiny Catholic church across the mountain in Nitro, West Virginia. And uh, it seated 190 people if you put the folding chairs out. And <laughs> um, so we started a folk mass. And so we had guitars in church. So I started singing in church. And then I joined the choir and the band and all that stuff. And then um, there was this summer when all my friends got their driver's license. And mom said, what am I going to do with her this summer? They can all get jobs. They can all drive themselves. So she looked in the paper and she found this audition for community theater that summer. And like I said, she was like my, you know, she was like my manager, right? My tour manager. She was like, would you she has to keep you busy. <laughs> exactly. She said, would you want to do this? Oh, that sounds like fun. It was Godspell. And I auditioned and dang, if I didn't get it. So she drove me to practice every day and, um, I, then I got involved with the local community theater scene, which is still very strong in Charleston. Great productions, a really active community and really supported by the community too. Did and you ever think about going that direction instead of just yeah. performing, going into music theater or Broadway or something? Yeah, I had a drummer for a while who was married to a Broadway star and she was a singer songwriter. And we went out to dinner after one of her shows one time in New York. And we just had this big laugh because I was living her life and she was living mine. <laughs> and uh, it was great, you know, and I, I'm really glad it happened for me the way it did because, you know, I don't have to negotiate with fellow band members. I don't have to, you know, do what the Broadway show director tells me. I mean, I get, I, you know, win or lose, good or bad, I, I you know, I make my own decisions about my own career. So, um, you know, I think that's been a blessing for me. So let's go to, back to, to Mountain Stage for a second. How did Mountain Stage get started? I mean, what's the history there? It goes back um, pretty far, about 40 years, right? Yeah, it's at 38 years right now. Mm. December will be 38 years. Um, Larry Gross, you know, had had this novelty hit called Junk Food Junkie on the radio. And he had been on all the major interview shows, you know, Johnny Carson and 
you know, all the, all, I mean, I think he did some, I think he did like midnight special or something, you know, some of those big concert shows and, and he was touring all over the world and he wound up in West Virginia on an NEA grant. He went around teaching music in the schools and doing cultural exchange stuff. And he's a, he's kind of a Renaissance man. And he had this novelty hit, but the experience of touring around when he was doing the novelty hit, he, he decided, this is the story as I understand it, he decided he wanted to take the best of all of the interview shows that he was doing and make his own show. So he got a couple of friends. Andy Ridenour was the exec, original executive producer and Francis Fisher was an engineer. Uh, and I can't remember if he was with public radio already or if he was doing other things, but he had a lot of experience. And the three of them got together and they decided to try this. And I remember hearing about it and thinking, well, that's really interesting. And I remember thinking, who's going to come to Charleston? I mean, it's really hard enough to get people to come and play the arena because the arena is not as big as Pittsburgh or Cincinnati sure. or Louisville uh, or Lexington. And so, um, you know, I thought this is going to be interesting. And, you know, they were just, they had a vision and they were tenacious. And Larry is not a native West Virginian, but his story, he says, no, I'm not from here, but I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> and so he came later and appreciated it. And for me, I've, I moved away young to another music center, but I feel like an expatriated West Virginian, you know? So it, it colors the point of view I have about the world and music and everything. Well, what was the mission originally? Was it always to champion emerging artists and established artists? And was it mainly West Virginia focused in the beginning or was it always national acts? I think they started out with West Virginia focus as much as because they were just trying to kind of get mm -hmm. it up and go and get it with legs. It's about West Virginia culture, um, about just sort of saying, hello, we're here and we're not all barefoot hillbillies who are ignorant, you know, drinking moonshine. We appreciate, there is a sense of community here and a sense of the way community appreciates music and nurtures music. Um, also, there's a culture around the show that is known in the business about how it feels to be there. Like er almost every show, every act listens to everybody else's set. There's this set, sense backstage and you see musicians who've heard of each other, meet each other, or people who haven't seen each other in a long time. I, I was hosting one of the first times and David Bromberg was on. And, you know, David Bromberg produced a record that changed my, really is a big part of why I came to Nashville. And he came walking in and I said, I can't believe we've never met. I'm Kathy. He said, of course you're Kathy. I'm David. I'm so glad to meet you. Do you want to sing a duet with me today? And I was like, sure, why not? And I, that's that, that is the spirit of the show. Like everybody comes to listen to everybody else. And it's so fun to watch people either connect after a long time, not seeing each other, like Ani DeFranco and Dar Williams hadn't seen each other in a long time and they dedicated songs to each other or um, to see people suddenly wake up and appreciate somebody they've never heard of and be like, oh my God. Rodney Crowell came through. He had a keyboard player, uh, a woman named Catherine Styron who used to play for me years ago. So we got over in the corner and caught up. So it's just, for me, it's the sense of community and I know the place, I know the people, I know the spirit of the thing and you know, it's just a win-win for everybody. Well, I know you're one of the uh, guests that's been on the show the most. 
And yes. so what kept drawing you back? And you're kind of alluding to it here, but what made you want to go back and play it again and again? Well, it's my hometown. And That's it's helpful. an institution. And, you know, I, I mean, it's just a no brainer. Mm -hmm. It's like you go home, you know, you, you mm -hmm. put out a record and you go home to your, you go touch home base. Um, you know, it's, it's just, I love those guys and I love what they do. And so, you know, I would always go back, you know, as much as I could. It is a little bone of contention that Tim O'Brien's been on more tons than me, but you know, I love him so much. I, you know, I just, I give him. I was going to say, I think going forward, you're going to trump him on some level as far as how yes. many times you're on the show. It, well, you know, there's those like carefully worded records. You know? Right. I've been on the show more times than anyone, but he's been a guest more times than anyone. So we both get, to, we both get to come out on top. You got bragging rights on both ends. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how did the show go national? So it starts off in West Virginia and how did it actually, you know, become a national institution that's in over 300 markets, I think at this point. I didn't know anything about how that worked. And they said, look, this year, the uh, NPR convention is going to be in San Diego and we want to do a show for it and make a pitch for the show to go to go national. So what you, you go to the convention and you show them what you do. And they'd been doing it for a few years already. So they had it down, you know, they had honed their, they, they kind of had their focus and they knew how to do it. And so I was on and my friend, Wendy Waldman was on, who's just a great singer songwriter. Um, she was out of LA and moved to Nashville for a while and did some producing and she and I got to be good friends. So that was very sweet for us. And you go and you play for all the promoters, the, the uh, heads of, the, of all the stations, and you sort of pitch what you do. And they did a thing where they, uh, they, they did West Virginia catering. So they got like uh, Burger King hamburgers <laughs> and cut them into force. And that was the hors d'oeuvres. Oh, that's awesome. And, and they also, it is one of the legendary stories now. Uh, one of the crew guys, um, Andy, the executive producer, got a call from someone at the hotel and they said, look, we need to tell you there is a strange smell coming out of one of your hotel rooms. And he's like, oh, my God, that's all we need is just to get busted, you know, in San Diego at the NPR convention. It's like, I talk to those guys. You guys have to be cool now. You have to like, you know, be as like we have to make this happen. And as part of the catering, they had brought ramps from West Virginia, which oh, is a wild onion that is now gourmet food, but was really very West Virginia back then. Not many people knew about it. And they had left the ramps in the hotel room and they had gone bad. Oh. And it was the smell <laughs> of the ramps that they were complaining about. Oh, my God. That is so <laughs> funny. Yeah, that would probably and smell pretty bad, I would think. Oh, my it was, it was pretty rank from what I've heard. And, you know, I mean, ramps don't smell great when no. they're good. <laughs> <laughs> so the artists that are on the show, the, the music seems to be pretty diverse. It's just, it's, it's every kind of genre, right? It's every genre. And as Larry put it, Larry and I have had some good conversations about this. He said, you know, you're not going to love everybody who's on the show. I don't love everybody who's on the show, but everyone who's on the show has a constituency and everyone who's on the show deserves to be heard, has earned the right to be heard and has earned the right to spread their audience and, and reach new people. And I can't tell you how many times, well, there's a young woman on this weekend named Yasmin Williams, who's uh, an acoustic guitarist, acoustic fingerstyle guitar. Only when you watch her, 
she will blow your mind. She uses a cello bow and hammer dulcimer hammers and a kalimba and tap shoes. And she taps with her fingers and she plays like this and she does heart control. I mean, it's just like, she's just from another planet. She's 24. Wow. She's 24 years old. I can't tell you how many like young musicians I've seen that are using traditional instruments in completely new ways. I have more faith in music right now than I, ha I ever have. You know, we, uh, the, the mission at Diddy TV is also to work with emerging artists and established artists. And um, I can't tell you how gratifying it is when we've had someone in for the first time that they probably ever played a, a television yeah. network. And then later on when um, their careers have really taken off. So I would imagine at Mountain Stage, it must be very gratifying to see these artists um, at a point in their career, maybe when it's at the beginning, and then to see them later on in their career. You can feel the ones that are about to explode. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the great stories is that they had Nora Jones on like five times before anyone knew who she was. And then there's the moment when, you know, the phone rings one day and it's REM at the height of their career when they're playing arenas and stuff. And they're like, look, we really like Mountain Stage and we think it's really important. We want to come play. So they just came and played Mountain Stage. Or Patti Smith. She was there to induct her husband into the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame. He's deceased. And so she just did Mountain Stage the next day. It's like, you know, there's just these kind of moments of Asleep at the Wheel just played with us at the Kennedy Center. And I mean, I'm like, Asleep at the Wheel doing a 25 minute set, really? But people were throwing babies in the air, you know, and they've been on a bunch of times and they're one of the touchstone artists that keep coming back. So there's some just beautiful, beautiful traditions. Now, what were you guys doing at the Kennedy Center? I remember reading something about this, but it was a special presentation of some sort. Yeah, they do road shows. They will take the show mm -hmm. on the road to mm -hmm. areas where um, the stations are carrying the show. And uh, it, it had to do with a connection that uh, it, uh, it, it's a roundabout thing. But when someone found out that I was taking over, they're like, oh, I've always wanted to host the guy who books the Kennedy Center was like, I, I've always wanted to host Mountain Stage. And I think this would be the, a good time to do it. So can we book that? We're like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was so fun. It was so fun. I love the Kennedy Center. They do so many interesting things there. And um, they have the summer concert series there that's out in the lobby and it's all free and it's just, just amazing. Yeah. I've heard do. about it. Tim, Tim O'Brien said he had played it and it was a great experience. Yeah. It's very cool. I saw that you're launching honor your hometown series. Tell me a little bit about honor your hometown because we've had a couple of guests um, on Diddy like Woody from steep Canyon Rangers. Mm -hmm. He actually has a fundraiser, fundraising concert in his hometown every year for the boys and girls clubs. And I know that, you know, Warren Haynes does a Christmas concert every year in his hometown to raise money. I think it's for Habitat for Humanity. But what are some of the goals of Honor Your Hometown series and, and what was sort of the idea behind that? Um, I, this came from, I, I was invited to participate uh, by Marty Stewart who is an old friend and, uh, and then he and Ken Burns kind of got together and it was something Ken had thought about for a long time. And when the country music series came, came out, we all, during the process of making that, we all got to know Ken and his team. And so, you know, when Ken Burns has an idea or asks you for something, you just say yes, you know? So um, I think the idea is that um, 
it's a counterbalance to some of the cultural stridency that's going on to remember smaller communities, the place you grew up, what it was like, and to, you know, to bring that to mind so that we either reinforce or create more of that as we move forward. And it's very interesting. My husband uh, has written a, 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 like a song cycle that he's doing with a storyteller out of Minneapolis that's about the same subject. That's just about like, um, what happens when you slow down and there's a little space and you know your neighbors and you walk into the, you know, the local grocery store and the guy greets you while he owns the grocery store and he comes and says hello and you've known him your whole life. And, you know, a lot of us grew up in hometowns like that. And so it's about preserving it and, and valuing it and seeing it for the important institution that it is that isn't named very often. I'm kind of wondering if the pandemic has made people really appreciate smaller towns more. I mean, you hear about people leaving big cities and going to smaller towns mm -hmm. because all of a sudden they're thinking, I, I need some space and I need community, haven't had community. It's amazing how something like that can really affect you and, and make you appreciate things you hadn't appreciated before. And maybe these smaller towns are gonna grow as a result of that, we're gonna all spread out well, I think, I think one of the positive things about um, the, the, the kind of sense of stopping that just happened for so many of us is that it, it kind of forced us to appreciate community, appreciate it when it's gone, figure out creative ways to create it and connect with people in front of us and uh, and who live close to us. You know, we had, my husband and I just moved to a new neighborhood. We lived in the same old house, old cottage in an old residential area of Nashville for 30 some years. And they started gentrifying their neighborhood. And we were just like, this is hurt. This is too, too crowded, too much, too much of a transition. So after a lot of soul searching, we decided to move and we wound up moving a week before lockdown. Oh, wow. That's and tough. Just, <laughs> yeah. We just, well, Char and Charlie, as it turns out, Charlie McCoy lives across the street, the great harmonica player from West Virginia, who's a member of like, you know, the Country Music Hall of Fame and the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame, who's an old friend. And uh, he's kind of a legendary guy. And he literally lives across the street. And the first thing he said is, you're going to love it here. There's such a community in this neighborhood. And so like, you know, Halloween night, the unofficial mayors of the neighborhood, they, his wife, they open their house and Everybody just goes to their house and they, you know, there, there's a barn party every year at somebody's barn behind the house and people are doing concerts on their front porches. And, um, you know, a guy is a beekeeper and got two new Queens. So he invited people over to his driveway to social distance and watch him put the Queens and split the hive, you know, and it's like all of this has happened since we moved here. And so I think everybody is looking for connection and it made everyone have to stop and take a breath and look at something besides what's the next on my to-do list? What's my next accomplishment? What do I have to do next for work? It's like, Oh, what you'd strip all that away. Mm. What do we have? What do we want? What do we need? And, um, and so I, in that way, I think there were, you know, there was obviously some gut wrenching things that happened, but there was also some, some light in the darkness. I can't tell you how many musicians I've talked to about their time off 
during the pandemic when you couldn't tour. And in the beginning, it was a bit of a, I think everyone would say it was a bit of a shock to the system, to one's pocketbook, all those things that you're moving from, from a normal workflow to something that's completely different. But then almost everybody has said there was a major silver lining in that they became more creative, um, taking the time to really relax and think and you know, figure out what makes yourself tick and what makes you creative and then spending time with people that you care about that you maybe didn't have time for before and that maybe when we come out of all this, we're going to retain elements of that because it kind of demonstrated to everybody how important that was. We're all going too fast. Oh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. My husband and I, on our first date, we went out to dinner and he dropped me off at the bus, <laughs> got my suitcase and deposited me onto the bus. And I've been on the road since we met. Wow. And this is the longest span of time we've had off and together. And it was that part of it was really sweet. I mean, we just hunkered down. And I think for a lot of people, they either got closer or it, you know, it, it exacerbated any problems and they either dealt with them or it blew up. But, um, you know, someone came onto mountain stage that I've known for many years and I hadn't seen for a long time. And he was like, how'd you guys do? And I was like, you know, we just got closer. He said, we did too. And I'm really glad. But uh, for some people, it didn't work out that way. But it was a chance to sort of uh, focus on whatever was unfinished. It was interesting. Well, congratulations on being married for many, many years. And, uh, and in, in becoming closer, you know, during this time, and also congratulations to being the new host of Mountain Stage. I know you're going to do an amazing job and um, very exciting. If you're ever down in Memphis, come see us at Diddy TV. And yeah, I'd love us. to. I'd we love would love to. to work, do some, do something with you guys, and help, you know, spread the word, so to speak. So. Let well, us know what we can do. It seems like our mission is similar. Very similar, very similar. And uh, wish you all the best with that. And um, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me, Amy. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with West Virginia native and multi-Grammy award winner, Kathy Matea, now the host of Mountain Stage, the famous radio show that's broadcast thousands of unforgettable live performances by rising stars and veteran legends alike. We're so excited for Kathy in this new role of hers, and we highly recommend that you tune in. Visit mountainstage.org to learn more. And remember, you can visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 